everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of our podcast series, um, Public Sector Heroes. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Anil Doshi, who's joining us from New York. Anil. Raj, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, thank you. And um, it's great. I'm really excited about our conversation today. Before we jump in, let me just tell people about our podcast and just a very quick intro so we can really get to some of the amazing work you've been doing. Um, so if you're familiar with our podcast, Public Sector Heroes um, is really the goal of the series is to introduce global government uh, marketplace to forward thinking and successful leaders who are really bringing uh, great ideas, research, and driving innovation and transformational change throughout the sector. Um, so throughout the series, we've been lucky enough to speak with uh, some amazing leaders from public sector, government, academics, so all, all walks. And what we really hope to take away from that, these conversations, is really some practical takeaways that all of us can go back to our organizations, our teams, and apply them starting today, hopefully. And so... Um, uh, so please check out some of our other uh, uh, podcast episodes from before. So with that, let me just go ahead and uh, jump into our conversation with Neil. First of all, uh, Neil um, has an amazing background. He's a former partner at McKinsey. Uh, he's also co-founder uh, of a firm um, uh, called Vega Factor. I just came across Vega Factor just through you know, LinkedIn and I saw, saw an article and I jumped right in and I said, I want to work at Vega Factor. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I need a job here, seriously. So um, Neil will tell us more, but um, I'm just reading off here. Vega Factor builds the highest performing cultures, which I think are the key to driving um, uh, organizational impact uh, based on one principle, why you work determines how well you work. Uh, love that. Uh, Neil and uh, his partner also came out with a book um, called uh, Prime to Perform, uh, How to Build Higher Performing Cultures. And now we know from a government standpoint, those of us listening in here and watching, uh, that's so critical. Right? There, there's so much conversation in government. Neil, um, no, so, so let's jump into the conversation. You know, our audience um, is primarily in the public sector. So we might have uh, a lot of leaders and um, managers who are, you know, working hard every day to drive impact in the public sector, which is can be complex. And mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of bureaucratic inertia, et cetera. And then we also have partners like companies, et cetera, that are also working with them to drive that same type of change. So I think your work really keys in on, you know, how do you build teams to drive change, drive impact? So I'd like to just jump in there. Now, one concept that you talk about early on in, from your research, from your work, is the whole idea of tactical performance versus adaptive performance, which was, you know, and we might have thought about it in different ways, but I love how you captured. Could you tell us more about, you know, what that means? Yeah, absolutely, Raj. Now, I'll take a step back to why do we even, why do we even ask that question? Yeah. What, what I started off trying to figure out is, is there a science to performance? I mean, my... My background started about 25 years ago as a software engineer at a big company. And I went into this company, really excited to be there, really wanted to change the world working there. Three months into my job, all I can really tell you is how much I hated working there. And the funny thing is I couldn't explain to you why. I just felt a certain way and I couldn't point to the root cause. 
Uh, I eventually left. I started my own company and now I had a blank sheet of paper. And the best I could do was build a pretty mediocre culture. It was okay, but it wasn't great. Now, you can imagine, I'm an engineer by training. I just tried to build something. It didn't produce the outcomes that I wanted <laughs> it to produce, which as an engineer is just an amazing moment because it just shows you, all right, I didn't understand the science of the thing I was trying to build. I mean, engineering is, at the end of the day, applied science. Yeah. And so I set out to try to understand what is the science of a high-performing organization. The first thing I found was this was not something that had been articulated yet. There wasn't a science of a high-performing organization. I mean, I think you'll remember this, Raj, at the time, the, the science, quote-unquote, of a high-performing organization was just do what GE is doing. And so what every company thought was, okay, if I'm Or the Toyota way. Or the Toyota way. So yeah. there are these best practices that you found when companies tried to apply them rarely worked. Rarely. And so I set out to try to figure out what is the science of a high-performing organization. Um, now, this is now probably about 25 years ago. And for the first 10 years, the work wasn't, wasn't producing a great answer. Like I was having a hard time really distilling it down until we realized we hadn't defined performance yet. That the research was non-conclusive because there wasn't a good working definition of performance. Like we're trying to essentially say, what's the science of a high-performing organization? But that, that dependent variable performance mm -hmm. was murky. And so we took a step back and we said, we got to figure out what do we mean by performance? And what that journey led us to is this realization that there are two types of performance. The first is tactical performance. The way we think about tactical performance is it's about convergence. I'm trying to get a bunch of people to follow their policy, follow their process, follow their plan, uh, follow their script. It's, it's a function of convergence. The second type of performance is adaptive performance. It's about divergence. I'm trying to get people to not follow their plan, not follow their process, not follow their script, and instead solve the new problem or come up with a better way of doing their work. Now, the thing that really got us to a point of, of understanding was that realization that these two types are definitional opposites. Convergence and divergence, tactical and adaptive, they're actually definitional opposites. Something that we, we experience every single day. Like, Raj, have you ever called a call center and you can hear them reading a script to you? <laughs> you can tell that's where their head is. You're trying to get them to understand your problem they're not really even listening. They're just kind of following their checklists. Or you get the good call, person, uh, call center person who actually tries to understand. Yeah, and you never want to let go of that human being. Like you <laughs> want their personal cell phone number, you yes. want their home address. Like you <laughs> want to make sure that you hold on to that person yes. for the rest of your life. Yes. Um, now, what you're seeing when you hear that person reading you that script is the tension of tactical and adaptive performance. That organization, almost certainly was doubling down on the tactical at the expense mm -hmm. of the adaptive. The problem is you need both. You need both because tactical is in many ways about not reinventing the wheel. It's about learning from our mistakes. So why do we have a policy? Why do we have a process? Why do we have a procedure? Because there's some best practice or some past learning and we don't want to actually um, waste our energy on relearning what we've already learned. On the other hand, you need adaptive because there's always a future learning. There's always a new thing. There's always a better way to do things. There's always improvement. If an organization doesn't learn how to balance tactical and adaptive, if an organization instead allows one to cannibalize the other, it'll never be that effective. Mm -hmm. 
Now, by and large, we see the pattern we generally see, uh, especially in the public sector, is tactical destroying adaptive. That an overemphasis on convergence, an overemphasis on here's your script, here's your policy, here's your procedure, now follow without fail. That overemphasis on the tactical ends up destroying adaptive. But we see this in companies all the time. Like by and large, as you look at most large companies, I'd be curious, Raj, if you see this in all of your work that you've been driving, but by and large, what we see is overemphasis on tactical, destroying adaptive. And then these CEOs, these executives saying, I don't get it. Why are my people not solving problems? Why are they not owning it? Why are they not being innovative? Why are they not being creative? The first thing I point out to them is the, your, your very system of driving their performance is what's destroying the outcome that you want. Exactly. And I think, it, absolutely, I think anyone who's listening from a public sector standpoint, uh, rules, regulations, policies, that's what the governing philosophy is, <laughs> yeah. how to drive organizational performance. And we're actually doing a survey right now on barriers to entry in government markets, and we're getting a supplier perspective. But the number one thing that's been highlighted is the rules, regulations, and policies that are there, even for outsiders, yeah. that people have to conform to within the government are somewhat of a choke point and a stranglehold. So yeah. I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I was just gonna show you this one thing as we talk about adaptive performance. I actually ran across, um, you can't see this through my Zoom background, yeah. but a recent issue of Harvard Business Review. And the last one actually has the cover page, cover uh, article is where people management went wrong. And it actually talks about how, even in private sector, how we've over-engineered people management. And I think so, so somewhat related to, I think the point you're, you're, you're getting across here. You know, I, I would probably frame that slightly differently. We've over-engineered the tactical and we've under-engineered the adaptive. Okay. That um, you look at organizations and they focus so much on, um, let me kind of set somebody up in a process and make sure they never deviate from it. Mm -hmm. And that, well, if I set you up in a process, but then you can never deviate from it, that implicitly says you can never improve it. It also implicitly says you can never solve a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the over-engineering of that tactical performance as you're describing it, that over kind of the, the management philosophy that shifted so much towards that is actually destroying the adaptability of companies today. Mm -hmm. And you see this play out at scale all the time. Um, why do you see so many giants? You know, you think about when we were, when we were entering into business, the big, the big management book was Built to Last. And that, the set of Built to Last companies today, many of them are on their deathbeds or anemic in their performance. Mm -hmm. Why? If you look at almost all of them, it was because they'd built systems of such extreme tactical performance that they destroyed their own adaptability. Well, and a lot of it came from, I'm guessing, the, you know, Frederick Trailer, for instance, when we establish, really, this is how you, know, you establish an assembly line and you get more, more out of people and that whole philosophy again. So tell us about adaptive then, a bit more about that. You know, so what, what, is, what is the difference here and, and how do you make adaptive performance happen within your organization or how do you build a culture around that? Totally. Um, now, that's a, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> um, let me start with what's the difference, because I think that's yeah. the first thing yeah. to see. The thing that a lot of organizations don't quite realize is that it doesn't matter what job it is. Every single job has a component that is a tactical, 
and a component mm -hmm. that is adaptive. Mm -hmm. That tactical component is we have, a, we have a strategy or a plan or a process or a policy. And the right thing to do in that moment is to follow that policy, process, strategy, plan. Um, every single job, though, also has a component that's adaptive. That adaptive component is there's a problem. There's an issue. There's a better way of doing things. There might be a new technology to try out or experiment to improve performance. It doesn't matter what job you're looking at. Every job has the two. So I'll give you an example. I was, I was working with the partner of a VC firm as they're, as they're trying to apply this research to their portfolio. And I was kind of explaining the, this first question, like what tactical adaptive and how does it differ to this partner? Now this partner focuses on a number of things, but one of the things he focuses on is video game companies. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, this so, it's totally explains something that just happened to me. He said, the other day I went to one of my portfolio companies and they had me demo the game that they were making. And he's like, okay, I played this game. I turned to the engineers. I just asked them, just out of curiosity, any of you, would any of you play this game? And they're like, no, you know, I don't think it's for me. <laughs> would any of you recommend this game to anybody that you know? No, I don't think I know anybody that would be interested in this. Why'd you keep making it? Like, why didn't you adapt? Yeah, yeah. Well, they were so on a regimented, here's what you need to deliver this week. Here's what you need to deliver next week. Here's what you need to deliver the week after. They were so on a regimented process of tactical performance. Of course, they didn't adapt at all. They were too focused on the convergence. So they didn't diverge. So, so, so a question I have in that example is, is it that, is it that they didn't have any ideas I think that this is somewhat rhetorical, but they didn't have any ideas on what they could do differently or why they should stop, or they felt like they couldn't say something in that organizational culture or within that organization. They didn't have the leeway to be able to say, hey, this, this, this doesn't feel like there's not a lot of people that are going to use it or yeah, play almost, with this game. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost always not they didn't have the ideas. It was almost always there, yeah. the system in which they were working put blinders on them. Mm -hmm. um, and those blinders actually prevented them from just taking a step back mm -hmm. to say, wait a second, should we keep doing this? Is there a better way? Like when you're in these highly tactical process oriented, regimented um, tasks or process systems, you don't take a step back and say, is this, is this the thing to do? Mm -hmm. um, even, when, even when you're in systems where the goal is just to regiment your task management, you don't take the step back and say, should we do this, should we not do this? Um, and that's, that's the problem. Now, when given the space and the opportunity to take that step back, they do. Um, they will come up with ideas. They will, have, they will have better ways of doing things. But that's the problem. Because this now gets to the second, the second piece of this research. So once we realized that there are two types of performance, tactical and adaptive. And we also realize that you want both. Like any system that causes one to cannibalize the other is suboptimal from a performance mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah. Once we realize that, the next question became, how do you create that? How do you create the both? Like what is at the root of someone operating in a way that's both tactical and adaptive? And that's when we, that's when we realized the point that you, that you read about how Vega Factor works, that why we work determines how we work. Now that sounds fluffy and it's kind of like a kumbaya sounding statement, but Raj, you know me for a bit now, you know I'm not that person, I'm an engineer and I'm pretty hard in my delivery of engineering. 
that statement, why we work determines how we work is an engineering principle. Uh, you, can build, you can build with it. You can build an organization with it. But to understand that engineering principle, you have to realize that there are six reasons why people do anything. We call these reasons motives. Like a motive is a reason why you did something. Why are you doing this podcast, for example? Um, why did you take your kid to the park? Um, why did you pick up your kid when it was raining? Like all of your actions are driven by a motive, whether or not you realize it, whether or not you've even thought about it, every human action pre preceded by a motive, mm -hmm. a reason why you do the thing. Now there's six motives. The first motive is called play. Play is when you do something simply because you enjoy doing it. You have fun doing it. Um, like my guess is you play with your kid because of play. It's fun for you too. You actually enjoy it. The second reason is called purpose. Purpose is when you do something because you value its immediate outcome. Now, play and purpose, you're seeing a lot of companies get these wrong. They think play is, I've given my colleague a ping pong table. That's not what this is. Like play is, the work is itself is enjoyable. Purpose, a lot of companies think it comes from the big mission statement. That's not what that is either. Purpose is you believe your personal contribution matters. That if you didn't show up to work that day, it would matter. Now, the third motive is called potential. If purpose is you do something because it immediately matters, potential is you're doing something because it eventually matters. So for example, um, Raj, you're playing with your kids. Well, you might enjoy, you might just have fun doing it. That's play. You think it's helping them learn right now. That's purpose. You think that what you're doing with them is going to help set them up for their careers and their futures. That's potential. Now, you can also have three other motives that are no longer connected to the work, um, the indirect motives. So the first is emotional pressure. Emotional pressure is like you're doing something out of guilt or shame or peer pressure. So Raj is playing with this kid because Raj's wife guilted him to doing it. Um, it's not because of the activity anymore. You're actually solving for an emotional pressure. Mm -hmm. There's economic pressure. Economic pressure is you're doing something to gain a reward or avoid a punishment. Uh, I'm going to have a hard time coming up with an example of this with your kid. <laughs> um, the last motive is inertia. You don't know why you're doing it. You're just doing it because you're doing it. To, to cut to the chase, if somebody is doing an activity because of emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia, there's far, they're far less likely to be adaptive in that, in that activity. Put differently, when someone's under pressure, it's when they're least likely to try something new. Now, when somebody's doing an activity because of play, purpose, and potential, they're far more likely to be adaptive when the situation calls for it. You know, think about it in your own personal life. Let's kind of make this, you know, I'm kind of making this very personal to you, Raj. Hope you don't mind. But um, think about like a relationship that you're in, wife, significant other, and ask yourself, why are you in that relationship? Because every action has a motive. Uh, you, know, you don't have to answer that. I'll have to bring, bring my wife over. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, but you could say, for example, I'm with, my, um, I'm with my wife because of play. We have fun together or purpose. We're creating something important together right now and how we're raising our kids, for example, or potential. Like we're eventually going to create something really important together. So that's why we're together. Or emotional pressure. I'd feel guilt or shame if I were to leave economic pressure. I don't know about you, but I need my wife's income to pay the rent <laughs> um, or inertia. I have no idea why I'm with my wife. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine two people answering that question. One says play purpose potential. The other says emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. Every relationship needs to be adaptive. You hit problems, issues. To be adaptive in a relationship, you have to problem solve together, listen to each other, compromise, come up with experiments, try them out, be open-minded. Which of these two people is most likely to be adaptive when the situation calls for it?
you know, when you kind of think about it through the lens of these motives, obviously the person that's in that relationship for play purpose and potential is more likely to be adaptive when the situation calls for it than the person that's in it for emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. And the research bears this out. So do you, do you see, um, and when you look at these six factors, and I did read about them, and you talk about the whole idea of total motivation, right? And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I just did a talk. I think you uh, gave me some advice. And I was able to go back and relate some of the things that we'd done, you know, uh, which we were recognized for in my previous company, um, and, and characterized a little bit differently sometimes. But, um, you know, it was always a struggle, I'll say, you know, when you're thinking about purpose or you're thinking about play the way you characterized it. Is there one that matters more? Like, so if, if, if we were looking at, let's just say, I'm just going to, this is something we struggle with sometimes, so I'll just use our example, right? Like, is, is the mission really important to everyone in an organization? Maybe, maybe some people are really motivated by it, maybe others aren't, right? So we kind of thought about the play part, the way you characterized it, more we characterize it as different things like personal growth, et cetera. But, but is there, is there one, you know, how do you like juggle these? I guess that's yeah, the question that question. I, I have. Yeah. You know, it's a great question, Raj. It's, not, it's a nuanced and complex question. Um, so I'll share, I'll share three thoughts on it. The first thought is a lot of CEOs will say to me, you know, Neil, I think I've solved for motivation because we, we just hired an agency and we spent a few million dollars and wrote a great mission statement. Um, and I said, I, no, you didn't. For a couple of reasons. One, if that mission statement isn't real, it's not going to affect anybody. But two, that mission statement, if, even if it's real, is more likely creating the purpose motive for you, the CEO and the executive. But as you get further and further down to your, your organization, their work doesn't really directly drive that mission. It indirectly mm -hmm. drives mm -hmm. that mission. So at the very best, as you're going down that organization, what they're feeling for that mission at the very best is the potential motive, not purpose or play. And the potential motive is the weakest of those three direct motives. And by a lot, like the, when you think about motive strength, play is by far the strongest. I mean, the things people do for their own play, think about hobbies that you might have. Mm -hmm. um, people spend crazy amounts of time and money and energy on hobbies where they might not even be good at the hobby, um, but they do it because play is crazy powerful. Mm -hmm. then, then purpose, then potential. Generally, you know, there's no real hard and fast on this, but when we measure motivation, generally we find that the, the cleanest, most predictive way of measuring performance from motivation, play is usually twice as strong as purpose. Purpose is okay. usually twice as strong as potential. Um, my, guess is, is it, my guess is because play in some ways, because more, more immediate and direct impact that you can see on a daily basis, right? 100%. As opposed to kind of purpose where you might have a long-term goal, even if you believe in it, it's not necessarily something you can see and even future potential. It's, it's, it's there, you might aspire to it, but it's still not gratifying right there. Yeah, and, and really with, that's exactly right. And with purpose, for you to feel it at all, it has to be pretty immediate. Um, as soon as it starts to get further and further away, you're really talking about the potential motive. Mm -hmm. um, now, my purpose is possible. So for example, um, one organization asked us to help, help build motivation in a front line that they didn't manage. 
So think about franchises, for example. Um, let's say I'm a, I'm a parent company, but I franchised my, my brand out and there's a bunch of franchises. I don't actually, those people in those franchises don't report to me, but they very much represent the brand. Yeah. So how do I do that? Um, and so one of the strategies is, well, you, you can't actually, since they don't report to you, you can't actually influence them directly. Can I, can I build the purpose motive indirectly? And so one of the examples was give your customers um, coupons, essentially um, gifts, give your customers gifts that they can give to the employees. Now, uh, I did this experiment with, a, with an organization and I went to one of their properties. I, I gave this um, person that was kind of delivering my food for room service uh, a coupon. And the look on this guy's face when he got it was purpose motive. Now, you'd, you'd mistakenly think, was it economic pressure? Was he doing it for the coupon? That's not what was happening. What was happening was he felt like his work mattered. Mm -hmm. That's the purpose motive. Um, but even that is still half as strong as play. Um, and so one, the first thing I suggest to you is for if you're working with executives and you're working with CEOs, you're trying to develop a motivational strategy or culture or an operating model, don't confuse potential for purpose because potential is so weak. When we work with organizations, we rarely focus on potential at all Okay. because it really doesn't have much impact. Um, you can think about it in your own life. Like think about how, um, let's say you like to exercise because think about exercising. Okay. If you exercise, is it play? Like I have fun exercising. Is it purpose? It's actually mattering today. So for example, I'm going to play a sport this weekend. If I exercise, I'm going to win that game. Or is it potential? I'm exercising because I want to live a long and healthy life. Now, the funny thing is, you know, that's important, but that's the potential motive. It's yeah. not easy to get yourself to exercise when it's the potential motive, even though you know it's important. When it's play, I have fun exercising. You'll do it all day long. Um, and so the strategy to think about in motivation is, can I get it to play? Now, the other thing to think about, though, is the reason why, we, reason why this whole construct is called total motivation when it's summarized up is you can't forget to, you have to decrease the pressures also. Um, so I see a lot of organizations where they fixate then on play, but they also create high pressure environments for their people. That's not going to help. Like the, the high pressure environment yeah. is going to actually um, prevent you from ever really establishing play in the first place. So what I'd say is there's not one silver bullet, but if I had to, if I had to focus an organization, I'd say, let's find ways to create play in the work. Let's find ways to decrease things that are arbitrary sources of emotional and economic pressure. Great. Well, let me, let me ask you, how do you take all of those? And I know you're working with some large corporate, you know, from the biggest brand names out there to all types of leadership teams. So, you know, how do you take this? How are you helping companies or organizations or honestly, a lot of people that within the public sector uh, who may be looking for this really, you know, the, the, the whole idea of how do you transform your culture? How do you build this? Kind of this kind of culture where you have highly motivated teams adaptive performance do you have a um, kind of a framework how you're working with uh, maybe you could just tell us you know what's the what's the what's the way of getting started moving towards that goal then and how you're helping it's such a good question um i'm guessing raj there's probably a lot of similarities between what i'm about to say and how you transform organizations so i'd be curious to see if 
you, th- you see parallels. And if you see something I should do better, let me know. <laughs> um, but here's how I, I generally start. Like it's usually a four-step process, um, although every organization is different. So we, it's never, you know, this is the tactical, but we have to be quite adaptive. Mm-hmm. The tactical four-step process for us is step one, the, the, the senior most leaders and executives in organization need to learn how motivation culture, operating models, and performance, how they all interact with each other. It doesn't take long to learn that, by the way. I mean, Prime to Perform, the book, pretty mm-hmm. much teaches you all of it. Okay. Um, so sometimes we'll have executive teams just read the book, or sometimes we'll do like a, a, a four or five hour workshop with them. Um, but the goal is step number one, you have to make sure that the folks that are designing and building the operating models of organizations really know what that means. Uh, the other thing about that first step is once you learn it, it's really hard to unlearn. So I'll give you an example. Um, just earlier today, we were doing a workshop with the, the top 100 of a, of a fast-growing tech company. So this tech company now, is a, they have about 2,000 people. They're probably a few years from IPO. Their leadership team is starting to realize that at that scale, they really need to figure out how they're building operating models that mm-hmm. actually motivate. And we had them do a very simple exercise. We said, okay, I'm going to give you a scenario. Imagine your child or your niece or your nephew or some kid that you care about. You're taking that kid indoor rock climbing. They're climbing up the wall. It's the first time up the wall. They kind of get to that little overhang um, and they fall right off. You're belaying them. You're holding onto that rope, but you want this child to, to try to go up that wall. What we had them do is we had them all write one sentence for each of the six motives that you could use to create that motive for that child to climb up the wall. What would you say that would elicit play? What would you say that elicit purpose, potential? What would you say that would elicit emotional pressure, economic pressure and inertia? And so they did that. So, and there were some great ones there. Like one of, one of these folks said, emotional pressure, well, your brother can do it, so why can't you? Um, economic- Always the motivator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, economic pressure, you better do it or else. Yeah. Inertia, we're here, so you might as well just do it. Um, versus play. Hey, you know, one person said, hey, there's, there's a moat below you and it's filled with crocodiles. Let's get you up. Um, or another, another form of play is, hey, let's just kind of plan this out. Let's problem solve this together. Let's make it a game. Like every step is a move on the board. Let's just figure out what the moves are. Um, purpose. Hey, you're not, I know you. You're not the kind of kid that gives up. Let's do it. Um, potential. You know, as you kind of learn and practice this, it's going to make you better at everything that you want to do. Uh, So they're writing out these sentences for each of these six motives. Once you start to realize as a leader, you actually have a choice on how you motivate anybody, your kids, your significant other, the, the, the people that you coach, your teams, your organizations. Once you realize you have a choice and it's actually a simple choice, you will never unlearn that lesson. Mm -hmm. And so step number one is we make sure that the leaders and executives of organization learn that lesson. And my guess is, I don't know, maybe this is, this is uh, naive thinking on my part, but you know, if you can use purpose, play, potential, why would you use the other three? <laughs> right? Exactly right. <laughs> They're more positive, right? In their framing, as opposed to kind of, you know, sometimes it may be required, but, but again, some, it's, 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 it's more of a positive enforcement reinforcement to some you know, it's, yeah. a good, it's a great way of framing it, Raj. Um, the CEO of a big bank once said to me, he said, Neil, he, he, he went through this first exercise. So he learned all this stuff. 
And at the end of it, he said, Neil, if we knew how to create missionaries, we wouldn't be creating mercenaries. We just didn't know how. And so what, we're, what we tried to help them see is you can create missionaries. So why would you ever create a mercenary? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is essentially the same thing that you're saying. If you can create that kind of motivation, the other way we think about it is when we do these initial sessions where we teach executives, we help them realize that there is a distinction between intensity and pressure. I can create intensity with play purpose and potential, or I can create pressure with emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. Why would I ever, why would I ever choose pressure when I can always create intensity? Mm-hmm. The issue is just that people didn't, people never been taught this. It's not taught in business school. It's not taught in the typical apprenticeships in business. Um, and both by the time you're a leader, you have to build operating models. That's your job. But there was no point in your career that taught you that. So step number one is we teach that. We help executives learn what does it mean to build an operating model that drives motivation and performance the right way. The second step is we actually teach all the leaders in an organization and individual contributors. Just get them all the same language and framework. The third step is we start to create real habits that are about how do we actually push the problem solving down? How do we make it easier for colleagues to feel the play of problem solving in their own day-to-day work? Uh, So step three is to start to experiment and and institutionalize the habits of a highly motivated, high-performing team. Step four is the scale and sustainability mechanisms. So for example, a lot of organizations have compensation systems that are toxic. Um, by step four, we're starting to gut those systems out and put in systems that are actually inspiring. So there is, in other words, um, there is a tactical approach to, <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> words, to building a culture. No, which is, which is important, right? I think, I think, you know, I'm, I personally have done a lot of work on culture, not to advise people, but just more into thinking about our own organizations and teams and, and I think, I think, you know, people struggle with that. And what, that's what I found is there's no systematic approach, right? How do you, I think the, the way somebody characterized it is how do you operationalize culture? Yeah. And, and, and so I think that's, that's kind of what you just went through. Tell me, you know, one last question here is, you know, in, in your work, what are some challenges you've seen where let's say they're following kind of this approach that you're laying out and doing their best? To, to get there, what are some pitfalls or common challenges you see that happen? Um, there's, there's a few challenges, but the, the challenges I think generally boil down to organizations generally don't have a good internal model for change management. So think about it this way. Imagine, you know, Raj, you've, I, you know, you build technology, you've built products, you've launched those products. So my guess is you, this is how you think when you're, as, when you put your product hat on. So imagine, uh, Raj, you built a product. I think you're building the, the amazing procurement portal, for example, right? Um, what's the first step? Okay, you build the product. You figure out who your early adopters are. You get those early adopters on. You study those early adopters. You shine a bright light on those early adopters. You put their quotes and their logos all over your web page, and you use them to get the next wave. Okay, so now you have the next wave of adopters. You shine a bright light on them. You learn from them, you iterate from them, you put their logos on your webpage, then you get the next wave. And that last 20%, you're never gonna get them. You don't, you don't fixate on them. Mm-hmm. Internal change management works the exact opposite. Internal change management fixates on the last 20%, amplifies them, 
and sets up a model where it's, we can't change anything until the last 20% is on board. This makes zero sense. The internal change model has to work the same way as when you launch a product. We're gonna find the first 20%. We're gonna shine a bright light on them. We're gonna amplify their successes. That last 20%, we're not gonna amplify them. We're not gonna amplify the negativity of change. When you use the first 20 to create the next 20, it's gonna create the next 20, it's gonna create the next 20, and that last 20 is probably never gonna get there, and that's all right. Um, problem one that we find is we generally have to teach organizations how to drive change as they're doing this because the change model is usually that, that opposite approach. Uh, and as a result, they never change anything. Um, so that's problem number one. Um, problem number two is we have to get organizations to realize that the answer is not training. Uh, that's a, you know, you smile and you say that. That's, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, you won't believe how many conversations where I've had people say, okay, you know what, how much training do we need? How much money do we need? How much can we pay you? And I've said, stop wasting your money because yeah. training is not the answer, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you can easily train forever. So we could go on. Um, but but even, in, even I have a really good uh, Fortune 50 example of this uh, where that was the answer coming out. But, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, and so like organizations are so used to saying, well, okay, if I want to solve a problem, I just need to train my people. Um, well, there's two problems with that. Your point that training is not really where you, where you learn a skill. It's where you get exposed to a blind spot, but it's not where you actually learn the skill. Like I can be trained on what it means to ride a bicycle, but I'm not skilled in riding a bicycle after training. Um, you know what I mean? Like you actually have to get on the bike and now it's apprenticeship. It's on the job. It's mm -hmm. your team and your colleagues and your leaders helping you learn through the work that you're doing. Um, but there's a second problem with the training approach. It essentially takes executives off the hook on changing what they do. And you can't build a great culture operating model if executives don't change how they're leading because so much of the performance orientation yeah. of the organization is actually coming from the executives. Yeah. So what we often see is organizations say, Neil, I love it. I want my folks to be, I want that high performance model you're talking about. I totally see the research. I'm applying it to my kids right now. Now, can you just train my people and I'm not going to change any aspect of anything that I do? That's just never going to work. You know, yeah. I'll give you a perfect example where that plays out loud and clear. You see, you see today organizations at scale trying to implement quote unquote agile. Now, I kind of put in quotes because what they're implementing is actually a system of tactical performance, like not a system of adaptive performance, which was the intent of agile. Yeah. But even then when they're implementing it, they're not actually asking the executives to do anything differently in how they work. This isn't gonna, this isn't gonna work. Yeah. Because these operating systems go all the way to the top. And so that's the second challenge. Like what we have to do is help executives realize that they have to change. And the way we break, way that we, the, way we break, break the back of that is that's where we start. Because what we realized over the years is if we start bottoms up, we can't be certain that the executives will ever change themselves. And then what's the point for us to even start that work? What we realize we got to start with the executives, get them to start to change how they're working, get them to start to apprentice that new way down. Once they're demonstrating that they are actually there, they're learning, they're apprenticing, they're starting to change their operating models, their rhythms, then we go bottoms up. And what we find is that's actually quite effective. That's great. Well, I, I know we could continue this conversation for a long, long time. Um, 
really appreciate um, you know, the, the examples and, and really the approach and also all the work you all have done. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, you know, uh, I, I personally, I know I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it, um, uh, because you're taking something that, you know, people struggle with putting some science behind it through all the research and framing. So, um, for our, uh, audience, uh, we will have all the links, uh, to the work Neil, uh, and team are doing and, and you can check out their book as well, Prime to Perform, and definitely would encourage you to reach out to them as you're thinking about, I know many, many conversations I've had with many leaders, you know, everybody kind of struggles or at least thinks about, you know, what do you do to make your organization better? So the intent is there. Sometimes you don't know where to start or how to get there. Right. So definitely we all need help. Uh, and so, uh, I can't think of a better team that I've come across so far. (laughs) So thank you, Neil, uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much.